0: outside the box hello and welcome to november's outside the box we're right at the end of november because there was a couple of things that we thought we might as well hang on and see otherwise the timing meant that it'd be a bit late in the day to be talking about them so thanks for your patience i'm joined as ever by mick hello I love that you don't say it in a funny way now. Now Jen's not here to be horrified by it. <laughs> uh, although she will be back next month. So you need to try and like up your WhatsApp style <laughs> entries.
1: Okay, suggestions to at Mixed Noonan, please. How do I piss <laughs> off Jen with a greeting?
0: I was having a bit of a look about news. It's difficult to see what's going on, isn't it? Because I don't know what's going to be filming and what's not going to be filming. Lawrence Rickard gave us the suggestion that ghosts might be filming sooner than perhaps we thought it might be when we spoke to him last time, which is Mm -hmm. good. I also saw, and it annoyed me, I also saw that that thing that we watched that was dreadful has been renewed on Netflix for a third series. What's it called? The Umbrella Academy. Oh. And yet Glow's been cancelled. I'm annoyed. That is very
1: annoying.
0: Yeah. I assumed it was...
1: Graphic novels. Can we have some good news about what started filming again?
0: I don't know what has started filming again. Has
1: Succession started? Succession again? has started has filming again. Oh
0: my God, I'm so excited. But we have got loads of stuff to talk about. So I thought I'd split it into two halves. And we'll oh, before, go
1: before you tell us this, I have a question. A question that's been burning in me for us to record outside the box. Po- uh, outside the box. For outside, me the to pox. Ask you. <laughs> outside the box. Everything's virus related these days. <laughs> yeah. Um, outside the box for me to ask you. Uh, can I ask you a question? Yes. Okay, it's a TV slash film, I suppose, related question. Okay. And my question is this. So whenever there's been like an action scene or a lot of drama or a lot of fear, a lot of running around. And obviously when we used to play Dunleavy Does Disaster and you had the question, when did they go to the toilet or where did they go to the toilet? So there's been like, they've been up for 24 hours fighting murderers. It's particularly
0: pertinent in 24, to be honest. Yeah. When does he go to the toilet?
1: Yeah, but in in a more general way, when characters have clearly been active for a long, long time, yeah. and it's exhausting just watching them, and yet they still manage to tumble into bed for some vigorous sex. How how is that a thing, Hannah? Am I doing it wrong? Is that, what that's my question. Watching? What have you been watching that's made you so? Bring we've, this I up? I rewatched True Blood. I mean, and obviously it's all sex and fangs and rock and roll, but. I was just like seriously I'm tired just watching what you've been through how can you be thinking of fucking you just want a bath and your bed.
0: The bigger question with True Blood is how do vampires get erections given that they've got no blood supply.
1: And do they just spaff dust or blood? I'm guessing dust probably yeah. (laughs) Dust. Um, Well I didn't mean for this to get so arousing but my question still stands. Am I just really bad at this? Because, you know, seriously, if I've had to get up and do a full day's work, I am like, it's sleepy time now. <laughs> so.
0: yeah. yeah, I don't know. I'm always befuddled by the amount of people that wake up and just immediately start snugging someone. And I'm like, they haven't brushed their teeth.
1: Exactly. Because that was before I even get onto the fact that if you have been sweating with adrenaline and fear, you are going to honk. You're going to yeah. smell like a farmyard. No one wants to go there, but apparently, apparently they do. And I just wondered if it was the end for me, if this is what this signifies, that it's really started to bug me. And I'm like, oh, come on, no one would do that. they just have a wash and go to bed.
0: Well, we could actually maybe stick with sex briefly then, sex scenes, and go on to the first thing that we're going to talk about, which is The Queen's Gambit, Mm -hmm. which is on Netflix based on a 1983 novel by Walter Tevis. Queen's Gambit is a move in chess, but clearly it's a pun because it's about the character Beth Harmon, who's played by three actresses, but predominantly by Anna Taylor-Joy, who is a young orphan who is very good at chess and moves into the world of professional chess playing. There's always money in chess. Thank you, Robin. <laughs> Set in the 1960s. And I think it's interesting because, yet again, this is another Netflix series that's actually quite chaste.
1: Yeah it is quite chaste i would like to point out that i think i'd have the energy after a game of chess just just i don't know who might be interested in that but just so it's out there but yeah it is it is quite chaste but at the same time she does prance around in her underwear quite a lot which doesn't further the plot
0: okay so set in the 1960s in kentucky predominantly because that's where she's from but then later internationally goes to mexico goes to russia don't actually know if it is those places or whether that's just cgi and it's all just toronto like everything else actually is toronto (laughs) or bradford dressed up to be something else it looks absolutely beautiful i have to say it's
1: yeah it's stunning
0: because it's set in the 60s it feels like it's mad men inspired but also because it's quite beautiful people and interesting fashion choices it feels quite mad men and
1: those muted colors as well and
0: absolutely swimming in booze Beth Starts Life being taught chess by a janitor in the children's home that she lives with who's played by ever reliable Bill Camp. And that's kind of where that first that first sort of thing that sets it up about how isolated she is, the no physical contact thing. Because there is a lovely scene in it where they have their photograph taken and she puts her hand on his shoulder. And it's very sweet because obviously she's a little girl that's not used to particularly being touched or hugged or, you know. And it's it's kind of a weird relationship she has with him because he obviously feels some level of propriety to keep the hair up, her at arm's length because he is an older man working with young girls. So he obviously doesn't want to become too involved with her because he'll be suspected of things, even back in the 60s. Um, <laughs> Sorry, but that... even back in the
1: 60s. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but... It does feel like that sort of hands off attitude persists and she goes on to have a number of relationships in which you basically you learn that they've had sex but you never see it. You never see them touch. I don't think she kisses a single person throughout it. I think you see her first sexual experience, don't you, and it's awful. But after that you just it's just assumed that she is sleeping with these people and she's not. I just
1: I just found it slightly odd. What did you make of it, Mick? I thought it was utterly beautiful to watch. Like you said, those 1960s settings those muted colors even though obviously the colors were really loud in real life the fact that mm. we're looking at the past they're, they're done it's filmed really beautifully i think she's cracking and the little girls who play younger beth are absolutely phenomenal they're so good and it's a really gripping story mm. I actually, uh, yes. Who'd have thought I've, it? I've che- well, I was going to say, mm. I actually said to my mum, oh, there's this amazing series uh, on Netflix you and Brian should watch called The Queen's Gambit. And she's like, oh, what's it about? And I said, oh, it's about chess, but it's really, really good. I think you'll yeah. enjoy it. And she was like, oh, okay. And then two days later, I got a phone call going, oh my, this is so amazing. We're ripping through it. They loved it. And yeah, it's, it's a really beautifully paced story. You know, it, it's lean, but still lingers on various things. So it feels like there's a lot of detail in there. I thoroughly enjoyed it as I watched it. I've had a couple of thoughts since. One of those is the addiction issues that come up. Her mum, who is her adopted mum, played by Marielle Heller, who is phenomenal, is clearly clearly an alcoholic. Whether that has any relation to how her particular story ends isn't isn't given away but it would be odd if it doesn't and it's implied Mm. that maybe it does she also takes a lot
0: of prescription drugs
1: yeah which is what i was going to say about beth Mm. as well so beth is sort of weaned onto tranquilizers at the orphanage which is fucking horrific and then throughout her life relies on them so she can look up at the ceiling and play these beautiful chess games in her brain that's how she does it and she has moments when she's on them and moment when, moments when she's off them. And this sort of idea that someone that addicted to tranks could just stop whenever I found fairly problematic. I've got to say with her mum's alcoholism, it does provide the line, my tranquility needs refurbishing, which is absolutely how I'm asking <laughs> for more wine from now on. <laughs> it's amazing. My other issue is Beth does fall in love. Turns out her love interest is gay even though he was just about to kiss her and she's hurt by that he's sort of hurt by her reaction to that and then they meet again further down the line and it's just it's tied up without any sort of chat really and i thought that Mm. was quite lazy given how detailed a lot of the rest of the story is but these are i'm nitpicking i did think it was lovely What about you? I was a big fan. I mean, chess is one of
0: those things a bit like boxing. By that, I mean, when you see it used as an analogy for life, it's done well. And you could look at this and say, you know, there's basically no other female characters. But you could look at the queen on the chessboard and see it is a woman surrounded by men who serve her, essentially. Mm -hmm. And she has all of the power on the board. And I think... Whether or not I'm using that as a justification for this, whether or not that was the point of when they uh, when they decided to do it, I don't think it matters. And it seems to me that a woman getting involved in chess in the 60s would have been very much on her own.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: There is some interesting stuff early. The the person who's most helpful and most welcoming to her early is another female chess player. And they are basically made to play chess together at the start because I'll put the girls together because cause they'll both be crap. And there's an interesting scene where she starts her period and that girl is it goes into the toilet with her and helps her. And then after, she doesn't remember her at all when she meets her many years later. And I think because she is that kind of oddly standoffish character, which comes from the way... I would imagine it's a combination of the way she was raised, like because her mum seems to have been slightly odd before she died anyway... The way that like being in a children's home, obviously, and also like drug use and alcohol use would give her that sort of demeanour. But I think because she is so standoffish, there's a couple of moments like that where you just feel like there should have been some kind of happy payoff somewhere. Do you know what I mean? That she should have bumped into the woman that really helped her at the start and remember her. But she doesn't. I mean, it's not a fault with it, but it means that it's not necessarily the happy, smiley watch that you would maybe hope for. And sort of sense of female solidarity. It doesn't exist there.
1: Absolutely. Yep. And I guess that emotional unattachment is absolutely understandable because mm. of her history in the orphanage, but also because yeah. her mum does try to kill her, uh, yeah. in the, like kill them both at the same time. So why would she risk getting attached? And it actually yeah. serves her very well for her career to mm. stay at arms length from people but you're yeah. right we don't get the sort of resolution we we're, we're, we're used to getting in this kind of drama yeah. I suppose yeah mm, the point. other thing that i would
0: say is that i absolutely fucking love thomas brody sangster in this i think he's absolutely what a cracking <laughs> he's like he's been really cracking in a lot of stuff he was great in godless if people haven't watched godless that's still on netflix you should watch that he really nails that mix of i am brilliant people like me. I am a big name, albeit in a niche world. I am Uh a famous person. But at the same time, just full of neurosis and panic. And there's that great scene where he just keeps saying, do you like my hair? And he's just (laughs) like a a not a normally functioning human being who's kind of become a big name in this world, but is massively insecure underneath it all. And I think he really nails that. I think he's great.
1: It's worth pointing out to the listeners that Hannah and I are both wearing a leather trench coat and a cowboy hat in his honour. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Helen Lewis said something about how she really didn't like that look. And I have sent her photographs and told her I massively disagree with her. <laughs> um, well, we stick with Queen's then and move on briefly to The Crown, which you haven't watched. Uh, I, I have a not. Days... I
1: refuse to. No, I don't refuse to. I just haven't. And it feels like there's a lot to catch up on now there really is i've had a couple of
0: days off obviously so i watched i didn't mean to watch it all
1: <laughs> but it is easy to you watch just, it all you went to the crown on by accident
0: <laughs> no i just thought i'll watch a couple of them and then i'll review it and then i'll catch up with them later but it is just easy to just keep watching particularly when it's raining outside you're not allowed to go outside and that is what the is most this word day. outside you keep saying yeah.
1: it's weird i don't know what it means
0: this is obviously the fourth series. The Queen's still being played by Olivia Colman. it's her last series as the Queen. There's one more series to go. She'll be played by Milda Staunton after that, but everybody knows all of this anyway. This is actually just specifically for you, Mick. Um, oh, thank you, most, thanks. <laughs> Should I be Crown taking are notes? aware
1: of that, yeah.
0: <laughs> as I predicted, it starts with the death of Mountbatten and the election of Margaret Thatcher, and it ends with Margaret Thatcher's departure so it covers the period from 1979
1: to 1990. Yep. Margaret Thatcher's
0: got um, sexy. Yeah, I've got I've got thoughts about that. Olivia Colman, I think, has grown into the role a bit more. I don't know whether it was the movement from Claire Foy as the Queen to Olivia Colman that jarred a little bit with me last series. I don't know if it's because... Olivia Colman is now playing a version of the Queen that's more familiar to me. Mm-hmm. Tobias Menzies, who's the Duke of Edinburgh, continues to be great. He doesn't really get a lot to do this series. The trouble being, while well, Tobias Menzies is really great, I've no interest in the Duke of Edinburgh. So you're like, it'd be nice for him to have more to do. But then I just go, oh, that episode was shit. He had, uh, <laughs> I didn't really want to watch it. Josh O'Connor continues to be great as Prince Charles. All of that said, oh, I didn't really like this series very much for a couple of reasons, some of which are my fault because we're now in a period, like I say, 1979 to 1990, absolutely fascinating period in history, the 1980s. But this is about the Queen and the Queen's involvement in the 1980s is tangential, obviously. If you think about really big issues in the 1980s, obviously Ireland was one of them, but you only see it through the lens of of Mountbatten's killing. The miners' strike, you don't see at all. Um, oh. The nuclear arms race going on between America and... In fact, you don't see an American. There is no Reagan. I was expecting there to be a Reagan somewhere at some point in this. He He doesn't materialise. You see AIDS entirely through one visit Princess Diana makes to a hospital. So that's my fault, because that's not what this series is about. That's just like, I'm like, I want more actual 80s in it. I want the feeling of the 80s more in it. The feeling of the 80s in as much as Thatcher's government and the implications it had on the UK is largely seen through the episode in which, I can't remember his name now, Michael something broke into the Queen's bedroom. Do you remember that? The guy Basically. went and sat on the Queen's bed. So it's mostly told in that episode. And that episode is, is good, but equally it feels like it's trying to tell a whole decade's worth of story in one episode, so it, it, it kind of jars. Also, you get a bit of the stuff about Thatcher in South Africa and also Thatcher and the Falklands because they are things that are relevant to the Queen. What you do get is an awful lot of Diana, and that's something that is obviously very relevant to the Queen, but I'm not that interested in. That's it. I'm doing the head tilt, everyone. And an awful lot of Margaret Thatcher, which is my second point on it, which is Margaret Thatcher being played by Gillian Anderson, who has nailed Margaret Thatcher's physical appearance, I believe, including like the sort of funny, hunchy way she walked. But it feels like an impersonation. And when you throw that much effort into an impersonation... I wonder whether you're ever actually getting to tackle the meat of it. Mm. And I don't think people need to look like people or be like people or sound like people in order to give a good performance. Josh O'Connor doesn't really look like Prince Charles. But Helena Bonham Carter doesn't look like Princess Margaret. And actually, I don't think that's a great performance either. But, okay, better example Jason Watkins didn't look like Harold Wilson. But he did a great Harold Wilson. So I think too much effort has gone into trying to nail an impersonation of Margaret Thatcher and not enough effort has gone into trying to look at the woman underneath. And I found it quite annoying, to be honest. One last thing to mention is friend of the show, Becky Humps, Rebecca Humphreys, is playing Carol Thatcher in this and does a very, very, very good job of making Carol Thatcher seem likeable and actually quite sympathetic because... How Thatcher treated her two children separately and openly confessed to liking one child more than the other is actually quite heartbreaking in this, to be honest. I think Becky Humps is great.
1: Good stuff. I am, I'm still not inclined to watch it.
0: Well, no, that's fair enough. I mean, I wouldn't advise you to watch it now at this stage, to be honest. Because I don't think you need to be... In fact, most people I know, uh, when they start talking about The Crown, immediately say, I hate the royal family. And then, and then say something about the crown. So I think it, you don't need to be a fan of the royals. I think you need to be a fan of history, possibly, to, to get it. If you are a fan of history, you, you will like it, regardless of whether you like the royal family. But
1: I mean, I am a fan of history, but from what you've said before and what I've read around the crown, because oddly I do read around TV programmes that I don't watch, Seeing it as actual history is a mistake.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you're correct. And when I say about history, I think things like this should make people Google like stuff and go, oh, really? The Internet is currently littered with is and then insert thing that happens in the crown. True. Did thing that happened in the crown actually happened? Grazia, Bustle, Radio Times, everyone that's floating around on the Internet hoping for clicks is there writing those pieces. So if <laughs> somebody Googles it. But a lot of people don't Google it and Twitter has been full of some really horrific hot takes. I know if I go back in their timeline, they'll say two or three tweets back that they're washing the Crown before they say Margaret Thatcher was a bit of a working class hero, wasn't she? Or my favourite one. I know terrorism's bad, but the IRA did have a point, didn't they? And although I, there is an argument that the Irish Catholics had a point, do you know what I mean? That's not what people are saying on Twitter. And it, that does drive me mad because I think in lots of ways it spreads bad history. Because people aren't checking what really happened.
1: It's like people don't believe in facts anymore, Hannah.
0: Yeah, I mean, who would want to live in a world like that, Mickey? I don't um, know. I don't know.
1: One last thing for this
0: half. I thought i just briefly mentioned The Undoing. Currently on Sky, it's a six-part series. There's been five I've watched four. The question, really, of bearing in mind everything that I'm going to say now is, why am I watching it? And I've come to the conclusion (laughs) it's a a combination of lockdown and morbid curiosity, to be honest. It's by David E. Kelly, who was big in the 90s, did a lot of stuff like L.A. Law and Ally McBeal. Stuff that was thought it was hard nosed, but was actually quite sentimentalised.
1: Fucking loved L.A. Law, mate. But I was a child. So
0: there you go. (laughs) And also responsible more recently for Big Little Lies. uh, Which is excellent which he works with Nicole Kidman, who is also in this. And it's based on a 2014 novel called You Should Have Known. And it tells the story of a woman who is played by Nicole Kidman, lives in New York with her husband. And her son goes to a very fancy schmancy school. The mother of one of his schoolmates is murdered. And then Nicole Kidman starts to discover a lot of stuff about her husband, played by Hugh Grant. Yeah, I don't like it <laughs> I don't like it for a huge number of reasons I don't like stuff about incredibly rich people to be honest I find them quite hard to be sympathetic towards and there's a scene in which Nicole Kidman's playing chess funnily enough with her dad Donald Sutherland and this, she's sitting in his mansion in New York oops, oops. and he's he's she's basically like said how much money she'll need off him to like carry on to pay her son's fees at, at his private school And then she says to him, do you know, dad, all I ever wanted was to be happy. And I thought, oh, fuck off. It's well easy to say that when you're sitting in like a (laughs) billion pound house on the edge of Central Park. I mean, Jesus Christ, what world do these people live in? But anyway, I was really umming and ahhing about whether to say this because it does seem deeply unfeminist. But I've seen a lot of people say it on Twitter and I don't feel they were saying it maliciously I feel like they were saying it from the same point of view that I'm saying it and that is the biggest problem with this is Nicole Kidman has now had so much work on her face it is no longer an asset to her acting yeah the only thing on her face that moves is her eyes and therefore any reaction shot focuses in on her eyes her eyes are basically most of the time in the shot make your eyes look surprised Nicole make your eyes look sad Nicole because the rest of her face doesn't move And that possibly could be accurate for what someone who is like a millionaire psychotherapist in New York's face might look like. That might well be accurate, but it's not enjoyable to watch. It's just weird. It just it just makes the whole thing weird. So not a recommend then? That's not a recommend, although I will watch it to the end because, like I say, morbid curiosity and lockdown.
1: Isn't it mad as well on that note? about kidman's face and she is a beautiful woman and in repose still looks like a beautiful woman if a tiny bit wind blow not what's it called Um, airbrush wind wind tunnel (laughs) tiny bit wind tunnel and yet hugh grant who is a similar age looks a little bit like a scrotum a handsome scrotum but has been allowed to look like that yeah It's almost like there are double standards at play, Hannah. That's all I'm saying.
0: That's why it feels like it's unfeminist unfeminist of me to say it, because it's actually sad if that's what the case is. It's backfired on her quite considerably.
1: Except it hasn't, because she does keep getting cast in fairly major roles. Yeah, well, okay, then it's backfired on the viewer,
0: because it's not enjoyable to watch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's more accurate. Okay, let's take a break and we'll come back. We'll talk about Small Axe, we'll talk about the good Lord Bird, and we'll talk about octopuses.
1: Yay, octopuses!
0: (laughs) Okay, Small Axe. Let's start with Small Axe, which you and I have both watched two of. Series by Steve McQueen, written or co written. And all directed by Steve McQueen. I think we should just take a small moment to appreciate that people slag off the BBC an awful lot. Defund the BBC, they say. Defund the BBC. And the BBC has given us a full-length film and another four hour-long short films by an Oscar-winning film director. And I just think we should just... Consider not defunding the BBC if this is the quality of stuff it is going to
1: be. Don't listen to her, listener. She's just another lefty in the BBC's pocket. Sorry, carry on. Well, quite.
0: So, we haven't seen all of them. I've seen two of them, you've seen two of them. I do have access to other ones, but I can't see the point of trying to review six films at the same time.
1: So I think we should
0: probably... Five. I just can't see the point of uh, trying to review five films at the same time. But just to say... There are other ones. Two have been on the telly at the moment as we speak. The next one are stars John Boyega. So I'd imagine that'll get a lot of fuss around it. Mm. And then there are two more to come. The last one of which is about the education system and seems to be, from what I've read, predominantly female-led. So that will be interesting. I think maybe we could talk about it in the next Outside the Box uh, when that's been on the TV. So I think we should probably start with Mangrove which is the story, true story, of The Mangrove Nine. It opened the London Film Festival as a film. uh, But like I say, there it is, just sitting for free on the iPlayer for anybody to watch it now. If people do or don't know the story of The Mangrove Nine, then I'm going to suspect that maybe they don't, or perhaps our non-London and perhaps our white listeners might not know so much, the most famous member of the Mangrove Nine and probably the person that people are most likely to see as a familiar face is Darkus Howe who died a few years ago. Uh, used to do a lot of stuff on Channel 4 and write a lot in The Guardian. Set in Notting Hill around a restaurant called The Mangrove which became like a community centre in Notting Hill and was subjected to probably 20 year long system of harassment by the local police force and brutality by the local police force led to a protest in which a number of people were arrested and put on trial And it tells that story. I say it went on for 20 years. It went on for 18 years after the end of Mangrove. So it's not one of those bits where you're like, hey, this happened (laughs) and then everything was okay afterwards. Because obviously
1: that's not the way the world works. Frank Critchlow, who was the proprietor of the Mangrove, Mm. was on trial three times in Mm. his life, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, Before closing it down in 1992.
0: What I'm going to say is, I think this is quite a good film about activism. And it is an extraordinarily good courtroom drama. I think the first half an hour or so is good. I think the minute they hit the court, this is brilliant. And it has real flashes of old school Steve McQueen in it. And by that, I don't mean the actor Steve McQueen. I mean the same Steve (laughs) McQueen, but how he used to direct um, of some old school Steve McQueen in there. Not as much as the second film in this series, which we might get onto if we've got enough time, which was called Lovers Rock. That is, is way more flashes of it. But I think there are, like I say, a couple of brilliant Steve McQueen moments. Some of them defended themselves in this, including Darkest Howe. They were treated very much by the court officials as the people in the dock and not allowed to talk to co counsels And there is an instance where they are locked in a cell and he stays on Frank Critchlow in his long, thin cell. For ages, Steve McQueen focuses on that and he's losing his shit in there as well You would. that I think that's a really good scene. Dark as Howe put on the most phenomenal performance in court. So how intimidating that would be to take an actor to take on that role of him putting on a phenomenal performance. But Malachi Kirby, who's probably most famous for being in Black Mirror... I think he is absolutely fucking cracking. The speech that he gives at the end and Steve McQueen lets him do it in full. Other directors might have cut to the end of that speech or whatever and he does it in full. That's quite a long scene. And then when the verdicts come out, he holds Critchlow in shot and you get nobody else. You just get Critchlow.
1: Sean Parks is
0: incredible, isn't it? And he? I think Sean Parks is terrific. So all of those things, great. I think it raised an interesting question in me that again, I don't know... How I feel, which is good. Film should raise interesting questions. In that the female characters largely focuses on Althea Jones and Barbara Bessie, who was Darker House partner at the time, are incredibly angry. That is their entire driving emotion is anger. And although that anger was righteous, it's interesting how I felt watching women be angry and how different it feels watching women be angry on screen to how it feels watching men to be angry on screen. And maybe that's, maybe that was the point he was trying to make. If it wasn't, I still thought it was an interesting point it raised. should mention Athea Jones is
1: played by Letitia Wright. What did you make of it, Mick? Yeah, I thought Letitia Wright was absolutely standout. She was incredible in it. And I do think it's interesting what you just said about female rage. We're still in 2020 in a place where it's supposedly allowed but not really accepted and like we come from a generation you and i hannah where little girls were certainly told not to be angry or not to show their anger even if we were surrounded by it from fellas the whole first half an hour is incredibly angry and i think something that steve mcqueen does utterly wonderfully as he sets an atmosphere yeah and that atmosphere is claustrophobic with rage yeah. and it's it's quite a hard watch i think that first very shouty half an hour but it's it's the relentlessness of these people being under attack mm. for just living their lives this community who is just getting on with stuff just opening a restaurant so they can eat food that they want to eat with their friends constantly having these racist attacks from a racist police and it is it's very claustrophobic but i agree with you that the courtroom bit was totally my favorite just like hearing them be able to 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 speechify to have that time to say Mm. what they needed to say was incredible and you you could read around it and you could read that speech but i think hearing it and feeling like you've been through a little bit of what they've been through before it happens was really really well done. I thought it was excellent. And also, I've got to say, the actor. So Alex Jennings plays a, a racist judge who kind of maybe has his mind change a little bit, which is yeah. interesting. Oh, Alex Jennings is always and good. he's fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say he's as ever absolutely smashing. The guy, I think it's Sam Spruel Sam Spruell, who plays PC Pulley, who is an incredibly racist police officer, is phenomenal and it's a really hard thing to say when he is such a horrific character it's it's weird to say that he's phenomenal but he is believably horrific in it yeah yeah one more thing to say and I suppose if we
0: just briefly went on to the second small acts we could segue into this is what I enjoy about the fact that this exists is We've had a lot of conversations this year about race, obviously, because it's been the year for conversations about race. And one of the things that I find quite annoying is that we, as a British people, and by this I probably mean like social justice, activism, Twitter, is really keen to import American cultural stories and use them as examples of racism and what Steve McQueen is reminding people here is we got plenty of our own stories there are people here who did things this is a real life story there are communities here that have battles and like I say it's depressing because it went on for another 18 years afterwards and it arguably still goes on in some areas of some police forces today Definitely, there are British stories that deserve an airing and he is giving them an airing. So um yeah, well done Stephen Queen.
1: I think it's worth on that note pointing out the f- the way that the police join together, even though they know that Pearlie's in the wrong and they all yeah. they join forces. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. And you know, their pro- the prosecutor, the QC Sam West, isn't it? Sam West. It's very much like his thing to the jury is, well, a policeman said it. And even though they've kind of proven that he was lying, you've got to believe the police. That's your choice. You've got to believe the police. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. Yeah, it's very well. It's very good.
0: Okay, we can talk about the second part, Lovers Rock, which is an entirely different film. Obviously, it has no connection to this apart from it is about being black in Britain in the period about 1960 to 1980 which is what this series covers this is set
1: 1980
0: uh, does it I was going to say given that the song that they all sing in it uh, for about 5 minutes is actually 1979 I was I would have said 79 or 80 lovers rock is a whole different kettle of fish it's about the well-known soul parties that went on in London or in black communities, I'm sure, this one's set in London, but I'm sure it happened in Birmingham, uh, in Manchester, all over, which were basically massive house parties in the 1970s and the 1980s. And as such, it is entirely plotless. And I feel that that, in a lot of ways, kind of captures the, because obviously I didn't go to a soul party in the 1980s, but I did grow up in the second great wave of house parties that that started in the 1990s. In HMOs, you would put all of your furniture into one room and lock it, and then just open your door and have a party. Largely, it was dance music in those days, in the early 90s, and everyone would take a lot of drugs and pick people up, and they were an enormous amount of fun. But you would go to one, and you would have no idea where it would end. And the way this rambles... And sort of just moves through a party. I think captures that, even if it doesn't actually particularly tell a story. It just tells a story of parties. Oddly, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of Dazed and Confused. Uh, if you've ever, have you ever seen Dazed and Confused?
1: Yes, of course.
0: Yes. So that whole sort of it's just people just looking to have a good time. And who knows? There might be a fight. You might you might pick someone up. You might take some drugs. You might do whatever. Who knows where the evening's going to go. But it's really, really massively textured. It's beautiful to look at. It's really heavy on music. It's a lot of dancing, so it feels like quite fluid, the way the sort of camera moves between people dancing. And it it feels very musical, but not just because it's got music in it, if that makes sense.
1: Mm -hmm. I liked it. I don't
0: know if if I'd ever watch it again, but I I enjoyed it because I felt like it was just like, it was like turning up at a party and observing people for an hour and then leaving.
1: Yeah, it feels like a a lost moment in time, I guess. A really lovely insight into something that we'd never get to experience firsthand, or indeed right now in any guise. I got massive FOMO. Yeah. I was like, I really is. miss people. Yeah. But was also worried about like, oh god, they're all really close together. Should they be wearing masks? Yeah. I had to remind myself it's set in the nineteen eighties. Yeah, it's lovely. It's really lovely. I don't know whether I mean it's probably me being a bit dim, but I don't know what what it's supposed to be saying to me yeah i d- I don't really know, but I, I don't I know if it's supposed it. to
0: be saying anything to you though, apart from that there's something just bacchanalian in humans that that we do this stuff like this is and uh, maybe that's what it's trying to say to us. I mean, what was Dazed and confused trying to say to us? young people like getting fucked up.
1: Yeah, I guess. I guess maybe it's as simple as that. Um, but it's really beautifully done and like I mentioned about mangrove, Steve McQueen sets an atmosphere like absolutely brimming with detail and he does it really quickly and he's generous with the time he gives to stuff. So that that five minute song that you mentioned that just breaks down into the whole party singing a cappella. And you're like, is there going to be something? Is there going to be tension? Oh no, they're just singing and it is just this shot of people having a good time. And the tensions that do happen later on in the party are just the sort of tensions you get in a party. Apart from, I mean, hopefully there's not, I mean, okay, how, how do I phrase this? Clearly a lot of attempted rape does go on at parties and mm. there is an attempted rape. But yeah, the, I think this, the soul of this one is just people enjoying people and well it's lovely to
0: watch the interesting thing is deeper queen was originally an artist wasn't he and in yes. a lot of ways this feels like an art installation mm. yeah yeah i can see where you're going with that in that it, it, if it was in a museum they'd put you in a dark room and it would be like to, or in a gallery not a museum although it's a historical kind of piece isn't it as well so maybe a museum that you just be in a dark room and you just watch it and the idea would be that you were you were in there you were taken by it it feels in a lot of ways like an art installation rather than a story
1: yeah maybe do you think there's a version we could get for your ethan's virtual reality kit yeah maybe we could get involved and we could go to a party because that sounds lovely yeah do you
0: think i could get stoned sort of by that would that work (laughs)
1: yeah i mean Passively there was quite sent. a lot of weed there was quite a lot of weed docking around in there so i would have yeah. thought so yeah okay
0: you've got something to tell me about haven't you and then i've got something to tell you about
1: awesome Quid so quo quo. oh it's nice it's a it's a quality in action i'm going to tell you about my octopus friend which sadly isn't like a new pet that i've got but it's <laughs> a netflix documentary that came out in september And which i watched quite by happy accident after the last episode of the queen's gambit where it did that rolling on thing which usually really ignores me because i I like to kind of digest what i've just been watching but it was about an octopus so i stuck with it so the story is after suffering burnout from work filmmaker and naturalist craig foster wanted to reconnect with the nature of his childhood which was the undersea kelp forests off cape town and so he starts free diving daily. He just trots off to the beach, goes down in there, and floats around. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more energy involved than I've just made out, but he just goes <laughs> down in there and he floats around. It's like a Steve I mean... <laughs> McQueen uh, art installation. <laughs> it's five minutes. He starts singing a cappella, but the water gets in his lungs. <laughs> it's, it's terrifying. No, what does happen is he meets an octopus and their dance begins. She's really shy at first, slowly, slowly becoming used to this strange being in her environment. And Foster full on falls in love with the octopus. And you can tell his narration when he's talking to camera changes it for she and her as he entwines his life with that of the octopus. And at the risk of over-anthropomorphizing, the octopus does seem genuinely fascinated by him too. And she reaches out her tentacles to explore his hand and his arm. And at one point, she's busy doing something. And when he enters the water, she just drops what she's doing, literally drops what she's doing, dashes over to him and just sits on his chest and curls up there while he strokes her. And it's utterly, utterly gorgeous. It is extreme emotion overload they lay it on super super thick and Foster is allowed sometimes to let his story get in the way of the one that's much more interesting which is clearly that of the octopus but I'm gonna I'm gonna take some man centering and emotional manipulation for the utterly glorious footage that Foster has captured of this charming I think they're called cephalopods cephalopod that's the octopus family. she's just going about her business and making an incredible couple of escapes from a hungry shark that are just astonishing. At one point, the shark is about to get her. And so Foster's under the water filming. He's like watching one of the loves of his life looks likely to just be about to be eaten. And he goes, I have to go up and breathe. And so he has to leave and go up. And when he comes back down, and because he's obviously had to take all his equipment with him, He comes back down and she is now just sat on the shark's head. (laughs) 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 But we don't know how she got there, but they are very, very smart. And I guess, I guess that's it. Does it fail as a documentary? I guess, yes, it probably does because it allows emotion to get in the way of following its subjects and telling the true story. But it is fascinating. And I guess octopuses are about as close as we'll ever get to interacting with intelligent alien life form and seeing that at close quarters is it's exciting as well as beautiful uh by we there i very much mean marine biologists rather than (laughs) (laughs) i'm I'm not going to be interacting with an octopus although after watching sorry it's called my octopus teacher i got the name wrong because i want it to be my octopus friend so (laughs) i have been overly emotive about it because it's it's so lovely and it's an hour long and it's just utterly gorgeous big recommend. Great. So, last thing I watched is The Good Lord
0: Bird, which is currently on Sky, six-part series. Looks like HBO. Feels like HBO, smells like HBO. Actually <laughs> Stop <laughs> sniffing your telly. Yeah. Actually Showtime. So, well done Showtime for producing something that that has all of the quality of HBO based on the novel the good lord bird which is a fictionalized retelling of john brown's raid on harper's ferry mickey do i need to explain john brown's Um, raid on harper's ferry do you think
1: hannah's asking me that because i look slightly glazed over and just confused yes please okay john brown subject
0: of the song John Brown's body lies a-moulding in the
1: grave. Do you know well, that? That's very tuneful, Hannah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> you might have needed more oomph.
0: Well, John Brown's body lies a-moulding in the
1: grave. While weep the sons of bondage whom he ventured out to save. And though he lost his life in his struggle to free the slaves, his truth is marching on.
0: Okay, John Brown was an early abolitionist in America before the Civil War along with his sons and a gang of you know, papal supporters well-wishers, whatever you want to call it, was very active in pushing the abolitionist cause but was without doubt an exceptionally complicated human being Basically, he was exceptionally religious, really, really religious. One of these people that kind of failed in life and then found his thing, found his cause, and his cause was abolitionism. And that makes him sound like opportunist because I actually think this was genuinely held belief. I think he genuinely believed that God did not intend men to be held in bondage. That was not Mm -hmm. that we were all born equal and that was just something he couldn't abide. But he firmly believed that the only way that slavery was going to stop was that an exceptionally bloody war would have to happen in America to make it stop. And like, talk about prove a man right. Yeah. He was absolutely right and absolutely prepared to give his life, if necessary, to that cause and the life of his children, if that's what it required. Killed a lot of people, was involved in a lot of killing himself. He and his son's planned a raid on an armory at a place called Harper's Ferry in West Virginia. I've actually been there. Um, It was in Virginia when it happened. It's now in West Virginia. They encouraged all the local slaves to rise up, and then they would give them the guns, and that would be the start of the Civil War. Now, if you don't know what happened in the story, and maybe you do watch it, I'm not going to tell you what happened. Spoiler alert. I mean, he's obviously dead now. but um, (laughs) You could watch it, although it is history, so obviously don't Google it because it will tell you what happened. But generally believed to be the opening sort of salvo in the American Civil War, the event, the Raid on Harper's Ferry, which was going very well until it wasn't. You can't tell a story about black history with a white protagonist without encountering some accusations of the white saviour narrative. I have seen very few, to be honest. I have seen a few, and I don't have a huge amount of time for them, I'm going to say, because number one everything that I've just said, John Brown was a very complicated person. He got a lot of black people killed as well as a lot of white people killed. And he's not portrayed as a hero. He's not portrayed as that. He's just portrayed as this is who he was. And number two, what he did, he did. And if he was white, that was what he was. And he did what he did. And just to, by some example, Harriet Tubman, who was a contemporary of his, described him as the greatest white man who ever lived. Malcolm X, who obviously came about 100 years later, said that no white man would ever be welcome to join an organisation that he started. But if John Brown was still alive, he might consider letting him in. So, I mean, that yeah. is a five-star review on TripAdvisor there. <laughs> isn't it? So, but he isn't actually the main character in this. The, the way the good, bird works, the good Lord Bird works is, it's about a young slave in Kansas who is liberated, let's put that in quotes, liberated by John Brown and kind of has to join John Brown's band because he's about 11, I would say, and doesn't really have anywhere else to go. And so he kind of has to stay. So the question is, like, has he almost become like a slave of theirs, if you know what I mean, because he yeah. hasn't really got anywhere else to go? If he flees and he gets captured by himself, which he will, he'll just end up being sent back to the place that he was liberated from in the first place. But the key to this is, this is quite an irreverent retelling of history. And the the key to this story is that John Brown initially mistakes him for a little girl. And because he's been raised not to trust white people and not to know how white people are going to react to anything, he doesn't tell John Brown that he's a little boy. So the whole way through it, everybody thinks he's a little girl, except they don't. Most people work it out that he's a little boy, but John Brown is convinced he's a little girl. And there's a series of scenes in which he keeps asking him if he started his period yet. And the little boy doesn't know what he's talking about, obviously. And and so he just goes, uh, have you had your womanly time yet? And uh, the little boy's like, uh, no. And he goes, oh, should have happened by now. And things like that are hilariously funny. There are a number of scenes <laughs> in this that are just hilarious. Um, So, yes, it's he lives with John Brown in the build up and it's told through his eyes. He is played Henry or Onion, as he gets called, or Henrietta sometimes is played by Joshua (laughs) Caleb Johnson. I think that's the first time he's ever been in. And I think he is great. Frederick Douglass is played by David Diggs, which is just fucking joyful. After getting to do his version of Jefferson and getting to do his version of. The Marquis de Lafayette to see him take on another American hero is joyful to watch. Yeah, I liked it. It's 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 interesting, it's historically interesting, but like I say, it's kind of a an off kilter, a skewed view of American history. It's bloody as fuck because it was in those days. Do you know what I mean? It's harsh, mm-hmm. not necessarily an easy watch, but then it has moments that you just roar laughing. Last thing to mention, and I left it right to the end because I don't like him. I actually genuinely don't like him. John Brown is played by Ethan Hawke, who is also like a producer and I think did a lot of the legwork of getting the book rights and, and all of that stuff. And I am not a fan of, but he's fucking great in this. I feel like this might be the role that Ethan Hawke should be remembered for rather than all of the other Ponzi stuff he's made over the years. <laughs>
1: Forget all your Ponzi stuff. This is the yeah. role for you, Hawk. And um, mm. where can, where can we watch that?
0: Sky. The whole thing's up on Sky. It's also on Now TV. If you get Now TV, uh, I think they are showing it weekly. But yeah, it's 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 cracking. I really enjoyed it. It's probably one of my favourite things I've seen of the whole thing on this. I mean, obviously, I'm slightly biased because I find like American Civil War stuff to be super fascinating. Um, uh, and maybe other people might not. But maybe you'll learn something, and maybe you'll go off and Google John Brown and actually rather than have your opinion without actually doing that.
1: Anyway. <laughs> Who Guy knows, Hannah? the dream. They, they were they? great. No, no, yeah. that's uh, I'm, I might have to Google that. Imagine if you want to Google that. Yes, so
0: there's plenty of stuff for people to watch. We've been talking for ages. This can take me fucking ages to edit. Just Stop start a job, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> so, outside the box.